Okay, welcome to a bonus episode of Wind Your Neck In, and as always, I am your host, Niall Anna. This bonus episode comes because of the relatively recent revelations of a new proposed alternative to the championship, a competition that's been long-standing within English rugby, and the man behind the new proposal who joins us today is Mr. Ed Griffiths. Ed, welcome, and how are you? Not very good, thanks. Uh, it's been a busy week for you, I'd say, after the recent proposal went out roughly between a week to three weeks ago. Um, yeah, we presented it to the um, championship clubs a couple of weeks ago. And so, I mean, I suppose the initial question is, how, how has the feedback been so far? Um, well, I think it's just important to put the process, um, uh, make it absolutely clear. And, and that was that in March, uh, the championship found itself in problems because their funding from the RFU was being cut roughly in half. Uh, so I was asked by a couple of clubs whether I would just have a look at it. And I said, look, I'm perfectly happy to do that. Um, and to try and develop a model. And I thought that would be a sort of 10-page document uh, and something fairly straightforward and see if I could help them out um, in some way. Um, and then the project sort of started to grow and grow. And, and you know, you actually look at this league and you see there's real potential for it. Um, and the model grew and, and you know, I had help from two people, uh, in particular Nick Johnston, who uh, was at Sale and Northampton, is now at Coventry, uh, and Steve Smith at Nottingham, both of whom know their way around the game and know their way around the championship. So the three of us met, we consulted with lots of other people within and outside the game, um, and tried to put together a league um, that would be sustainable in the future. That was the brief, and the document grew and grew and grew, and uh, finally up to 22,500 words, 76 pages. Uh, which was presented to the championship clubs uh, at Harpenden Rugby Club. We had a meeting uh, at Harpenden Rugby Club uh, a couple of weeks ago. Um, and look, the document was not adopted at that meeting. That All the championship clubs basically said is they gave overwhelming support for the core principles yeah. uh, of this league, which we can go through, um, and said, you know, go out and talk to the RFU, talk to premiership clubs, talk to Buck Super Rugby, talk to the NCA and all the other stakeholders, broadcasters, sponsors, et cetera, et cetera, and try and come back before the end of August with a final proposal, which is obviously following the negotiations. And so we're in that consultation uh, process at the moment, trying to build a consensus in the league. This isn't a breakaway. This isn't a, a revolt. This is trying to look at English rugby and say, what is the role that the championship can play um, and how can it uh, best benefit the the game? Yeah, I think the the important thing to acknowledge initially, um, whenever I the seventy six pages, very detailed, a lot of a lot of planning and preparation will have gone into that. And I think my initial thoughts were that clearly, having played in the championship, it's a hugely beneficial place to go and play rugby. But as it stands, the model's broken, right? And I'm sure, without putting words in your mouth and having not discussed this with you before. The, those English clubs crying out for help essentially shows that the model's broken. Yeah, that's right. So, you know, the four core principles which are at the heart of it, the one is that the league should nurture the finest English rugby talent, not just players, but coaches and staff. So that's the purpose of the league. What is the purpose of the league? To nurture the finest English rugby talent uh, and deliver it, if you like, to the Premiership and then to the England uh, teams beyond. Uh, second, to connect and strengthen the rugby community. Um, I think sometimes as administrators, we become too focused on the England team and the Premiership and we forget about the rest of the game. Mm. And this must be a league that 
shows responsibility and care for the rest of the game and some of the structures we've put in place would do that. Uh, third is set a new standard in player welfare uh, because I think player welfare is talked about but not often acted on in the game at the moment and the, the amount of rugby that players are being asked to play is a, an obvious example of that but there are other issues of player welfare that need to be addressed. And fourth, uh, ensure financial stability and move towards self-sustainability. So English club rugby um, has for too long relied on the generosity of wealthy men um, and we need to get to a, a sustainable model. And I think we were heading that way anyway uh, and the pandemic uh, should hopefully accelerate that process. So those are the four key principles. Nurture the finest talent, connect and strengthen the rugby community, set a new standard in player welfare, and ensure financial stability moving towards self-sustainability. So those would be the four uh, key pillars of a, of a new league. So, I mean, the, the one that I'm interested in starting off with first is is having read through it, the one um, that I think, well, being a player affects me the most, and it's the player welfare section. Now, Ed, the, the, whenever you present something new like this, I mean, the first thing that people do is think about all the questions and all the problems that that, that, you, that could be adopted to it. So hopefully this forum is going to allow me to ask some of those questions and for you to provide a platform to maybe give some answers or, or acknowledge that there are some, there are going to be some negotiations and some discussions on some of the things that you propose. So the, the player welfare one is, is the start of the discussion because in any league, the players are the commodity, the players are the product. And if the product's poor, the rest of it goes hand in hand with it. So we know that in the championship, and I know this personally, having spoken to people who've played in it at some at some level, that there have been huge player welfare issues. So giving you the platform to do that now, what sort of things, I mean, I've got them listed down here, but I mean, some of the things that you've discussed around the education of training, the employment, financial welfare, physical welfare, mental welfare, and contracts. I mean, that's a lot to get through, but some of those probably stand out like a sore thumb for you. Which are they? Yeah, well, look, let me come to the, the player welfare just quick. Just, you brought up, people's response to change and I think that's yeah. fundamental to the whole thing here is people don't like change in, in any life you know if someone comes along and says look let's do this in a completely different way the reaction of people initially is well no well, you know they don't like change people don't like change um, and also you know I'm coming into this having been running around um, elite rugby um, initially in South Africa but now here for the last uh, 10 years or so and you know if when you're in the game as long as that you've you know you've had at least one argument maybe two arguments with most people um hopefully you've made up some of the time but but you you carry you know people come along and and they you know one person told me this was a 76 page job application it's not a job application i don't need a job uh, and secondly another one said that uh, no this is a I'm, I'm working on behalf of the rfu almost a mole for the rfu which is something i never thought uh, would be said so i think what I would urge people to do is to look at this on its merits. Forget about any plots or, you know, any ulterior motives. There are none. This is simply a model put forward by not just by me, but by lots of people from within the game. And, and you know, don't be scared of change. Look at it for on its own merits. Just judge the, the proposals on their own merits and, and, and then we go forward from there. So that would be the first point. Uh, and secondly is that, you know, every single conversation improves the model without a doubt. So this is not that we've been up the top of the mountain and come down with tablets of stone. Yeah. Every single model, and we've had, mo we've had discussions this week with uh, clubs, with broadcasters, with potential sponsors, 
and with vice chancellors of universities and every single conversation brings something forward which improves the model so you know that's part of a process going forward um so on player welfare i mean there's four kinds of welfare really we need to look at so it would be financial welfare physical welfare mental welfare and effective representation mm. financial welfare i think players within rugby should be given uh, clear advice on pensions insurance life lessons you know there's still too many clubs that essentially coerce their players into opting out of pensions and so financial welfare you know just the basics that that should be made available to players uh, as a rule mental welfare issues of mental health and you've had a couple of podcasts on that issue yourself so that's uh, awareness and support yeah effective representation we've proposed the players representative on the board and um, which would be a new idea but players need to feel part of the of the league the biggest issue for me of these though is physical welfare yeah and you know what we have to do here is try and reverse the tide on a consensus within the game and administrators have thought in in recent years that if you want more revenue you just have more matches yeah so let's have another match let's expand the league let's have more home matches whatever you do let's have 14 home matches or 16 home matches if we need more revenue at twickenham let's have another international etc and what we need to get people in rugby to understand is that more revenue is not produced by more matches what more more revenue is produced by fewer bigger matches mm. and and that's obviously the nfl is the example where they only have 16 matches in a regular season yet it's commercially the strongest sports product in the world so fewer bigger matches actually generates more commercial revenue than just having more and more and more games so the commercial reasons for having fewer bigger matches are, are very sound and proven in terms of physical as a game we just can't keep sending young men into these battering experiences weekend after weekend after weekend because we might not see the damage we're doing now but in 20 30 years you know it, it it's scary to think of what the consequences of this kind of battering are going on and rugby has become such a physical game that we need to i think scale back uh, the number of matches so uh, a big part of this league is that instead of it, it's currently 12 teams playing each other home and away uh, 22 league matches and we'd reduce that to 16 uh, by having two conferences a north conference of six teams and a southern conference of six teams you play home and away in your conference which is 10 matches so you have your derbies uh, but you play across the conference once so you'd play play either home or away against teams in the opposite conference and then the reverse fixtures the following year so that would come down to 16 uh, league matches and i think that's a critical area in in player welfare is we need to be playing fewer matches uh, there's some stuff about concussion protocols maybe extending that the return to play should not be so rigid it should be um more um sensitive to each situation yeah. uh we talked about centralized data that that the league would centralize all data in terms of physical welfare to get the best outcome uh, we talk about managed training and game time you know we need to have regulations that if a team plays badly the coach can't come and order some ridiculous head bashing session that causes more physical damage uh, and we need world class strength and conditioning and medical care in the league as well so you know that's a sort of package um of player welfare that i think you know would set new standards in the game yeah so the physical welfare is, is an interesting one for me ed simply because i know and and if and, and if we're going to look at this proposal in its entirety i suppose to some degree we have to compare it to what the model is now 
Yeah, that's fair, isn't it? Yep. And the the physical welfare of some of the lads who play in the championship is is nothing short of disgraceful at times. There are people who have to pay for their own operations. There's people who are having to play through injury due to uh, rules and regulations and contracts that permit the club to to slash contracts if they miss too many games. Are you proposing that that sort of um, player welfare uh, and the way that these players will be looked after would be considerably better? Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, what we're, what we're trying to do here is to get a kind of centralised uh, control of the league, if you like. So, and this is another thing that slightly swims against the tide. So in English sport, typically, leagues are run by club representatives coming together every few months and having a bit of a discussion about a topic, usually having a bit of an argument and coming to some sort of compromise. And in this league, uh, more control is given to the league to run the league in the interests of the league. So there's a whole range of centralising commercial rights of player contracts being held by the league, not by the individual clubs. Clubs decide which players they contract and for how much, but the contracts are actually between the players and the league. Um, and, And why that is, is because then the league can ensure that player welfare is taken across the board. So they can police it. Absolutely. So it's not a question of that club's very good, but that club's not so good. Because ultimately, the the league is the employer, not the club. So that the level um, can be uniform across the league, the level of care. And, you know, there's so much that can be done uh, in terms of the physical welfare and and developing a physical welfare protocol, which will be applied... Uh, by a league called the English Championship, so by a TEC physical performance manager who'd be employed by the league. And he would go around the league and around the clubs and ensure that these, this protocol is, is uh, adhered to. Now, again, people will say, oh, no, he's going to come and interfere. But as you know, the report says, the PPM, the physical performance manager, will not be a policeman spying and finding fault. He or she will be imp- employed to support the clubs to create an innovative learning environment where information is shared to ensure staff and player welfare. So I think player welfare is spoken about a lot, but I think an awful lot more can be done. Yeah, no, I totally agree. I mean, some of the stories you hear are horrifying and, and part of me feels relieved that I don't have to deal. I'm dealing with a club who deals with player welfare of seriously high respect. But I, but I wonder if we move back to that point about less games. Okay, now the obvious question is, does less games mean less revenue? The clubs, have they shown hesitation to get on board with because they can have concerns over revenue in, in less games meaning less money? Absolutely. And, and you know, and club treasurers will see that. They'll say, if, you know, we make X per game. Um, and so if we have 16 games or we have eight home games, we're going to make that much. And if we have 11 home games, we've got three more earning games. So yeah. we're going to earn more. And what I would say is no. Because if you have fewer games, you can create fewer, bigger games. So more crowds will come to those eight games than will come to the 11. And I think, you know, it's not just an opinion. This is actually proven around the world that you maximize revenue by having fewer, bigger matches. And I think that's, you know, that is makes, as I say, that makes commercial sense. It's proven around the world. But in rugby, because of the physical issues with the players Mm. it's absolutely imperative i mean that is the way the game has to go uh, and will go sooner or later yeah i think it's interesting i mean obviously the whole whole, uh, mission statement based around creating an environment where well my perception of it is it's based in an environment where young players can can take time to progress and then hopefully move up because their rugby's of a high enough standard they can move up to the premiership so we're aiming this at younger people is that correct 
Yeah, essentially. And I mean, and that's why, you know, we, we've said there's only a certain number of players that can be over the age of 24 in each league because, you know, the championship can't be a kind of lifestyle league uh, where sort of aging players just see out their their careers earning not a hell of a lot of money and just sort of existing. You know, it's got to be a vibrant competitive league. And as I say, one of the core principles of the league that it must give opportunities to nurture young English talent. And, and, and that's a key element of the league. Okay, so an interesting one then. What do you say to the, the mid to old age buggers like me? I mean, I'm 20, 29, so I'm not old. I want to get that on, I want to get that on record. <laughs> but what do you say to the mid to old age buggers who are going to be potentially shunned out of this league as a result? Well, there's still... Um, there are still places for them to play rugby, and but but is it in their interest? Is it in the interest of a thirty-year-old or or a thirty-two-year-old rugby player to be playing championship rugby and earning twenty-five grand, thirty grand a year? It it probably isn't, um, and I think you know that's why he should be looking at parallel education, uh, training, and then employment, and and sort of moving into a situation where they can continue playing rugby happily week in week out. Uh, but with in, in a structure where he's enable allowed to have a job as well. So, I think you know you want to try and create place for everybody, absolutely. But I think what the championship needs is a clear purpose. You know, so if someone says, "What's the championship for?" It can't be just a couple of old rugby clubs jogging along, uh, you know, playing along in in a bit of a grind through the winter. It's got to have a clear purpose, and that purpose is to nurture young English talent explicitly, to nurture young English talent, not just players, but coaches. You know, so we, we've got a regulation that three out of the four main coaches at every club must be English. You know, English coaches need the opportunity to develop. English um, S&C staff, English medical staff. Uh, so across the board, the championship in this format can be this incredible engine this vibrant engine which is just giving people opportunities to learn and grow and then either to move on into the premiership and england teams beyond or because of the strategy of parallel education training or employment to go successfully into a into an employment career Absolutely. And I think, you know, the, the other elements of player welfare that we've discussed around the, you know, we've discussed the physical, we've touched on the contracts, the mental welfare, I can't emphasize enough how important that is. The financial welfare is something that people won't have had um, a huge amount of exposure to. But the one that sits out for me is that educational training. Okay, so we're talking about players being able to tie in being a part to full-time rugby player with education and a job is that going to be made compulsory or is that going to be an optional thing like it is now no it has to be compulsory so so every player every contracted championship player will be obliged to have either a, a parallel program which is either education or training or employment so simply playing rugby is not enough and I think that's critical for whatever age they are, particularly for the young players, but whatever age they are. And obviously, we'll come on to the academies, uh, which is a key part of the proposal. Yeah. But, you know, the idea that you know, we must get past the idea where coaches or clubs resent uh, players uh, indulging, if you like, in parallel education, training or employment because it means they're not completely focused on their rugby. You know, it'd it rather be focused on parallel education, training or employment than gaming, you know. <laughs> at, the, at the end of the day, you can't play rugby 24 hours a day and there needs to be a culture within the sport 
um, that you know that you are doing something else as well. It doesn't mean you have to be studying for a degree in economics. You can be doing anything. It can be any form of parallel education or training or employment, uh, but you need to be doing something else. Yeah, no, I think it's vital, and I think I think you know John Smith with on one of the episodes earlier in the podcast, it, it hit home so hard with me as someone who looks at what rugby is going to look, what what my life's going to look like after rugby, and someone who looks at coaching. You know. A coach wants to know that John Smith's ready for a game of the weekend, but a good coach knows that John Smith can do other things to prepare himself for after rugby and be ready for the weekend. And I think that's a really important message that it seems like you're trying to get through here. But I wonder, you know, what are the hesitations from players who maybe at that age don't know what they want to do? Is there going to be support for them to make decisions, make mistakes and then find other avenues? Or is it basically going to be find something that you want to do along with the rugby or else you're out? So, so one of the requirements is for each club to employ an education officer. So a full-time employee of each club, I say full-time, full or part-time, but a full-time, an employee of each club who is designated to support uh, the players at each club, find the correct parallel education, training or employment. So it's not simply a question of leaving the player to it, but it's providing the support and giving them the options. And sometimes you're right, you'll get a youngster who doesn't know what he wants to do, um, but he needs to be out there trying, meeting people, trying this, does he like that, does he not like that or whatever, so that you have this parallel program which ensures a successful outcome. And I mean, we know this is such a crucial issue. I can remember so many times sitting with a young rugby player, 17, 18 year old, and he comes along and he's a talented player and he's dreaming of playing for England. And he's sitting there with his parents and the parents are terrified because they're scared Mm. that there's no plan B, that this youngster is coming into an academy, a professional PRL uh, club academy. um, And where's the plan B? And what we want to try and develop here is a process which has a guaranteed successful outcome. So as a young player comes out of school, and we'll come to the academies, but he comes into this system and there's a guaranteed successful outcome. Either the rugby goes well and he moves into the professional game, into the um, premiership, or he's got a parallel educational training pathway that means he moves into a job and he moves into employment and hopefully continues playing rugby. Yeah. But that, I think, is a, is a critical element of the, of the plan, which I think would, would be supported by you know, every single um, parent of a young emerging rugby player. Yeah, no, I totally get it. I totally get it. I, but, but, I mean, we move, let's just move on to the academies now yeah. because this is an area where... I mean, whilst reading through the 76-page document, this is the one that I can see the clubs having the biggest resistance to because there is a history within rugby of people being attached and close to bringing these... And and you only need to look at the Worcester squad that I'm in now with the likes of Ollie and Ted uh, to name two of, of loads of players who've come through the academy. Do you want to give the proposal of what the academy outline plan is um, and then we can discuss some of the questions around that afterwards? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, look, it's... In simple terms, it, this is a, a reorganization of the pathway in English rugby. So if you take the, the, the player leaving school and from when the moment he leaves school to the moment he gets uh, into the, is ready for the premiership. And at the moment, that pathway is largely run through 13 premiership club academies, which are financially supported by the RFU to tune of around about £350,000 a year. Uh, and and then the professional clubs uh, run these academies 
uh, and then players move into the game. They either drop out of the academy or they get senior contracts. And, and that's the status quo. And, and the main issue, I mean, it, it's a complex, but the main issue is the lack of game time. So young players need regular competitive game time. And at the moment, they've had the A-League, which is a sort of competition which hasn't always been well supported. And this year, in fact, isn't going to take place. Mm. So there's the best young players in England spend too much time holding tackle bags. And that that's, in simple terms, what's happening. So I think, you know, I understand that premiership clubs will have an emotional attachment to their academies and they will say, well, we've produced this player and we've had this youngster and, we, you know, but, you know, and there are one or two who have come through an academy at the beginning and gone all the way through to the senior squad and gone all the way. But there are also many who haven't. Um, and so, you know, I think that's where I suppose people need to be a little bit open-minded and not just have a simple, blind, emotional attachment to keeping their academy because our academy is the best and, and that's how it works. Because the reality is, if you stand back from it, the current system isn't working. The current system of premiership academies isn't working because these young players, their development is being uh, damaged by the fact they don't play enough competitive rugby at a higher level. So that's the key issue. Now, what we're proposing to replace those PRL club, premiership club academies is that they all stop and we put in place six regional academies. Uh, and these six regional academies would be based at universities. So we bring universities into the main structure uh, of English rugby and with all their fantastic facilities that they have, which you know we need to harness within the game. And each regional academy is associated to two championship, two TEC English championship clubs. And those hubs are where these, these players exist and they, they, um, they get game time either with the championship clubs with which their uh, academy, one of their regional academies is associated or they play in Buck Super Rugby uh, for that university in Buck Super Rugby or they play in matches between the academies, so inter-academy matches, or you've got England under 18 or England under 20 squads, and also at the end of the year, you've got a TUC Academy tour. So we want to bring back the idea of touring because that's part of rugby which has been lost. Yeah. So, you know, there's lots of competitive rugby for them to play and to continue their development. And then when they're ready to go into the premiership, to, to that level of the game, there's a draft, and every December... The, the regional academy directors will sit down and say, right, which players can go into the draft? And those players will then go into a big showpiece draft in December uh, into uh, four rounds. So 12 clubs choosing uh, 48 players across four rounds. Um, and, you know, I think that'll be a major event uh, for English rugby. And, and I think the draft will you know, will be uh, successful and that moves people into into the premiership. So as we've said, it, why does this model work? So it works for younger players because they basically stay with youngsters of their own age. They get world-class coaching because the coaching at these six regional academies will be exceptional. Mm. Um, many of the current coaches from the premiership academies could simply move across into the regional academies. Uh, they get parallel education and training, so a successful outcome guaranteed. Uh, they're nurtured alongside players of their own age, so they're not suddenly thrust into an adult environment. Um, and they're provided with the time and space to develop. So there might be uh, an outstanding player like Amaro Otoji, who might only need one year in a regional academy before being drafted into the premiership. But there may be tight forwards who need three or four years 
before they're ready to go forward. So the current system also lets down late developers and this model uh, creates space uh, for late developers. So I think it works for the players. Uh, it works for the championship because the championship now has a purpose, uh, a clear purpose to form a partnership with major universities and develop a new and efficient and effective pathway. And it works for the universities because the universities, while Buck Super Rugby has made fantastic strides in recent years, the universities are now within the pathway. Their, their facilities and everything they have to offer are now brought into the game. Uh, but the key element is that I think this model works for the premiership clubs. And, and there are five reasons. And this is really the key uh, to the whole thing. The first one is that each premiership club will be able to save between 600,000 and 900,000 per year by closing their full-time academy and concentrating all their time, energy and resources on the careful construction and maintenance of a winning senior squad. You know, the Dallas Cowboys doesn't have an academy. You know, they focus on a senior squad and winning rugby. So then each premiership club would attend the annual draft, as we've explained, and recruit exactly the players they need in exactly the positions where they're required, which is a much more efficient and cost-effective method than identifying teenagers, pulling them through the club academy and hoping players emerge where and when they're required. So while the current system might deliver two brilliant world-class loose forwards when you need a tight head and a fullback, when you go to the draft, you can get exactly what your squad requires uh, for the following year. This means that coach, executive and board time can be focused on developing the senior squad, leaving responsibility for managing the pathway to others. So in simple terms, to use a gardening analogy, PRL clubs will be able to turn up to the annual draft and pick the ripe fruit without the hassle of planting, fertilizing and nurturing the tree. And I think that's, you know, part of it is that if the game is to thrive, different parts of the game need to be given responsibility for different functions. Uh, fourth is that emerging player salaries will be controlled because the finest young players in England will leave school and move into an academy without requiring agents and the value of their first three-year contract will be set by the salary designated for the round of the draft. So again, an advantage for the premiership clubs is that player salaries are controlled at the lower end of the game. And, and I think that's a massive benefit. And lastly, you know, in general, the pathway between school and the premiership, which is currently unregulated, inefficient and expensive, would be smooth, delivering to PRL clubs a stream of excellent, reasonably priced talent. So I, I think this is a, the, the nub of the whole issue here, really, is that if you say to a premiership club, close your academy, the immediate knee-jerk response is, I'm not going to close the academy. Our academy is brilliant. We've invested in it. You know, we've developed players all these years, and they'll reel off one, two, you know, a handful of players who've come all the way through. But I think what, what the model asks them to do is to stand back and look at the wider picture here and say, is this a model actually that can bring real benefits for us? Uh, and I think that's the challenge. Sorry, Niall, I'm rattling on here. But <laughs> <laughs> no, you're, you're in the flow. I'm letting you go. I'm letting you go. Um, I got a couple of questions and I've been jotting them down whilst you've been speaking. And I find it, I do find it interesting. I mean, I, I'm playing the devil's advocate here because I think it's a really important subject that needs proper questioning and proper, proper questions asked. And, and I suppose that's what I'm trying to do. But so there's a couple of areas where I see, you know, vacancies are going to be made. And I suppose the first question is what happens if you don't make it into the, the TEC Academy when you leave school? Because there are, we know of late developers and we know of players like Don Brandt, who I've, everybody thinks I probably have a thing for him, but mm -hmm. he's the most obvious example of someone who's come into the game late 
and has made himself a quality professional. So what opportunities are going to be for guys who miss the initial TEC Academy opportunity? So there are other, you know, other forms of academy. Certainly in the championship, you've got Ealing have a, a successful academy, uh, Nottingham have a successful academy, and other uh, Doncaster, other uh, championship clubs have got existing academies that offer opportunities. And if, if you look at the numbers, currently roughly 20, 25 players in each premiership club academy, 260 up to three, between 260 and 300 players in those premiership club academies. And we'd anticipate around about 50 in this model at each of the six regional academies. So it's roughly moving uh, the 300 best young players in the country from premiership academies where they don't get enough game time and where they don't always get the parallel pathway of education, training or employment into a system where they're going to get masses of game time and the parallel pathway. And so that's basically the rest of it shouldn't necessarily be affected. And and the other opportunities which people are getting now would continue to be available to them with the academies uh, which are existing at these other clubs. So um, I, nothing should change in that way. And, and indeed, the developing player pathway, which you know, identifies players at younger ages, you know, before they leave school, and, you know, that will continue. But maybe we can learn something from Ireland because we tend to sometimes pick up players too young. Um, and and what, is, what the Irish have done successfully is they basically leave them at school through their teens with specific interventions, uh, you know, maybe skills or S&C preparation or whatever, but basically leave them at school uh, to develop and, you know, and, and then to bring them forward later on uh, and, and develop them in, into professional rugby players later on. So I think that nobody who is getting an opportunity now would be denied an opportunity by this model. But what we will do is, is, is provide opportunities for the finest young players in the country, which gives more than adequate game time at a high level uh, and a parallel pathway of educational training or employment. Okay, so let's move to the to the grassroots side of it. I mean, there are, obviously within every academy, and I'm using um, the ones that I know of particularly, there's a lot of people who work within those grassroots academies that <laughs> effectively become jobless, do they? No, not at all. Because, I mean, you know, well, you... You mean the grassroots academies of the other clubs, of the smaller clubs? Well, I, I, I'm not talking about the championship clubs, if I'm honest. I'm talking about those premiership clubs of guys who work with, you know, the deep, uh, what is it, the development player yeah, pathway. Yeah, that's and, right, yeah. Uh, they, do these guys have the opportunity to move into the regional academies? But I'm assuming there's only space for a certain handful. Well, yeah, but I mean, we're, we're not saying there should be less opportunity or less development. So I, I'm not sure that this means mass redundancies in any way. I think that, you know, I think there's people are being, it's more a question of people being redeployed mm. uh, into a system that I think is 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 probably a better system. So uh, I, I don't think that should be a, necessarily a fear. I think people with those skills, would those skills would still be in demand. And as I said, they would simply be redeployed into an improved system. Okay, well, let's talk about the young coaches then, because <laughs> I'm putting myself into that position. The young coaches, obviously, so I'm thinking particularly of the guys at Worcester, guys like Mike Hill and Gordon Ross, who are too young. You know, Mike Hill was an, is, an ex, is an ex-academy um, player at Worcester, and Gordon Ross is a decorated international. What those guys did was they went into the Worcester Academy and they've cut their teeth 
and, and become, you know, better coaches because they're getting hands-on time. And basically what my question is, you're taking the guys from, from the premiership clubs and they go into this regional academy, there isn't enough jobs for guy for the young coaches well, who are coming through. Well, I mean, teeth. look, it's not it's not exactly taking a stru- an existing structure and literally just moving everyone across. I mean, clearly, you know, there may be some movement, but I think the key element here is that if you look from a coach's point of view, the opportunity to coach in this in these regional academies. So, you know, we talk about these regional academies delivering world-class coaching. Now, imagine a coach that gets an opportunity to go into these regional academies where they have the players through the week and they without the pressure of the game on Saturday. You know, so everything can be geared towards creating these adaptable, skillful players. So teaching the core skills of the game. And, you know, this is something which... Um, Eddie Jones and others have continuously stressed to create adaptable players. Now, you know, that could be put English rugby at a massive advantage. And I think from a coaching perspective, a role at one of these regional academies um, would be a a, a brilliant coaching environment uh, to develop young players and help them realize their potential as quickly as possible. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I do. I get it. I get it. I think the, the 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 opportunity for people to go and work in these academies, like you're you're talking about working with the best players in the country within that region, it, it would be hugely exciting. I think the the draft. I want to go for the draft quickly before we move on. Um. And so one of the things that I read through in the draft system was it would be similar to the way the NFL is run. So the hesitation from some clubs, like I don't know, some of the best clubs like Exeter, would be why would I give you my academy whenever the likelihood is as a top one to four team more time and not i'm going to end up with a 12th round dra- a 12th round draft pick so the draft um in simple terms is that you would have uh, around 60 players uh, would go into the draft um and they would be picked so 48 of them would be contracted out of the draft so there'd be four rounds and players would be picked so the first round picks would earn a certain amount of money second round picks and third round and fourth round picks now th- the way that it's done um outside of uh, you know, as you say in the NFL, is that the team finishing 12th gets the first round, first pick of the first round. So potentially, uh, and, that, and that's a kind of egalitarian uh, principle. So it is a good question to say, will the wealthy premiership clubs, the ones who typically finish at the top of the league, accept the egalitarian principle of the club finishing last, getting the first round pick in the TUC draft? Mm. And I think it's true to say that one or two clubs may be resistant uh, because the TUC Academy model will prevent some of the well-financed clubs from offering vast sums of money to talented young players. Uh, and it will underpin the development of a truly competitive premiership. But hopefully there'll be more clubs that see that actually the premiership will thrive if it becomes a genuinely more competitive league. Uh, and that's part of the balancing act, if you like, where, uh, you know, the, the player, the, the clubs that have finished lower down the league can have access to the better players now you know just because let's say you finish 12th in the premiership and the following year you have the first round pick it doesn't mean you necessarily have to use it that first round pick becomes an asset that you can trade with another club so another club might come along and say okay we'll take your first round pick but we'll give you our pick our sixth pick in the first round and our second round and our third round pick so your your picks become assets that you can trade and and that's you know there's a whole process that goes through now again here the idea of a draft is again foreign to english sport uh, it hasn't happened here so but we don't have to reinvent the wheel you know it, it happened successfully 
in America. And as I say, the NFL, you know, none of the NFL teams have an academy side. There isn't a Dallas Cowboys Academy. There isn't a New England Patriots Academy. And the draft system has been developed and honed over a period of time. Um, and I think it has real benefits for the players uh, and also uh, real benefits for the clubs as well. Yeah, I think the uh, the idea of a combine would be something I'd certainly tune in to watch, seeing some of these young freakish kids doing, you know, I don't know, a 40-yard dash is the NFL equivalent to you know, maybe a 10, 40-meter time. And is that something that you've thought about, you know, how, how do these kids, how do they go and show their talents to the clubs? So if I'm a young... <laughs> Put me in there, Ed. Right, I'm going round round twelve in the in the fourth round. Um, if 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 you, if you, someone's in there and they have shown their case, shown their cases to the academy coaches and the academy coaches decide, okay, Niall's ready to go into the draft. What platform do I have to show the clubs that they need to go out and get me as a hooker? Well, the clubs will obviously have seen you know you playing either for the championship or in Buck Super Rugby. Uh, or in inter-academy matches offering an under-18 or 20 or in the TUC Academy Tour at the end of each year. So, you know, the players will be visible and will be showcased and and I think players, you know, will then know or clubs will know which players uh, they want to go for and which, which pick they want to have. I just think, you know, it's a more efficient system. But I completely understand that it's very radical and it's very new. But I, I would just, you know, again, come back to the point that, you know, the knee-jerk reaction of some premiership clubs to this will be, close the academy, you've got to be joking. We've invested so much in academy. And I would just urge them um, to look at it a little bit more closely and, and, and ask the question, which you know, people, more people in rugby need to ask more often, which is, what actually benefits the whole sport? What benefits English rugby? Uh, and, and as I say, I think this is a model that brings real benefits um, for, the, for the game as a whole. Okay, so I think we've we've covered off the the academies and and the certain degrees of of player welfare and stuff. I think the the next one to move on to is independent governance. Now, when you're talking about this independent governance model, uh, you know the RFU to some degree have been propping up the championship for a long time. Um, you know, and then obviously we have the the reduction in the amount of money that they're going to be giving to the clubs, and then whammy, just like that, you have COVID hit as well. When you talk about independent independent governance, who is it that you're talking independent governance from? Is that, are we talking from the RFU? No, not at all. So you know, the RFU is the governing body of the game, and, and they obviously should remain so. And the championship will fall under the RFU and and under ultimately under the RFU council, um, as as it does currently. What, what the independence is not from the RFU. The independence is from the clubs. So the clubs essentially the championship clubs. Uh, will come together in what's called a council where they effectively elect the independent chairman and directors. The TUC board, which is then all independent, so none of them will have had any connection to a championship club for at least five years, uh, will then sit down and uh, set a strategy and uh, which will then be implemented by an independent executive team. So again, this is something that uh, I think is is important because, as I said earlier, the English way is generally that clubs come together, uh, each mostly thinking about their own self-interest, uh, have a little bit of a debate, uh, usually a heated debate, and come to some sort of compromise that no one's particularly happy with, and the league sort of muddles along. 
And I think what we need here is the clubs to be able to have confidence in the integrity of an independent governance, which is independent from the club's self-interest, um, and let them run the league in the interest of the league because a stronger league will ultimately uh, benefit all the clubs. Yeah, so the independent governance really allows, I suppose it's what we discussed earlier, is it? it allows the, the league to, to police certain aspects of what is going on in the league. Absolutely, and and to make sure that in issues like player welfare that those high standards are delivered. But it's not independence from the rest of the game. I mean, this is not, as I say, it's not in any sense a breakaway or a rebel movement. This is about, you know, trying to, putting forward a model, uh, which, you know, obviously will have faults and which, as I say, can be improved by every conversation, but a model that will ultimately uh, benefit the entire game. And And this league needs to be weaved into the fabric. You know, I think... When people look back on it, on professional rugby in England, you know, the, the game sort of a couple of stiff gin and tonics and the game tumbled into professionalism in 1995. <laughs> and it was, you know, it, it has, I think people will look back on this 25-year period and go, why on earth was there so much fighting within rugby over these 25 years? And, you know, the, the game has been dominated by an ongoing struggle between the RFU and the premiership clubs. And, you know, my view would be that rugby is neither large enough nor wealthy enough to uh, be able to afford this infighting. And we need to get towards a structure of the game which benefits the general interest. And, and I think that would be found at least in the championship and in the revamping of the pathway which this model proposes uh, by independent governance. And that means let the clubs run their clubs and, and they look after them absolutely correctly and, and they look after their clubs. But the league needs independent uh, governance, which is independent of the clubs, not independent of the RFU. Yeah, gotcha. And I think one of the things you can't ignore whenever we're talking about independent governance is the finances of this. So who's going to finance this? How, how is the money going to be brought together? Because in your dossier or proposal, I mean, there's some pretty significant detailed work on and uh, what yeah. the player salary is going to be, how that's going to be broken down in relation to what the player welfare costs are. Who pays for this, lo this sum of money? Yeah, so look, I mean, the RFU uh, ultimately, you know, currently contributes as i say before the funding cuts was contributing something like uh, six and a half million pounds towards the championship uh, and through the subsidies to the premiership academies something like four and a half million pounds so that's already about 11 million pounds so is before the cuts that they were contributing to what you could say is a system that wasn't working so the issue here is that there is a uh, a system that will work now so that, that is a, an opportunity, I would say, uh, for the RFU to invest in a system which will bring significant benefits for English rugby. Uh, what I would say is that this league is developed in such a way to have real commercial potential. Now, commercial potential means generating revenue from broadcasters and sponsors, and that might not happen in year one. It's almost impossible for a startup to immediately realize its commercial potential from day one and that might take some time so there may be a period uh, where the RFU if you like will have to provide some funding to enable the league to get up on its two feet so you know on the very last page of the report I include a, a little story here which might explain a little bit uh, of where English rugby is and where this league is at the moment and it's called a cautionary tale of two sons uh, a loving mother bore two sons the older boy met some wealthy men more than 20 years ago, left home and started to build his own future, barely remembering to call his mother. There were ups and downs, but he managed to make progress. The younger boy stayed at home 
and for more than two decades was kept and led and fed by his mother, while showing little appetite to get into the real world and fight for his own existence and well-being. Finally, in 2020, the younger boy decided it was time to make his way in the world and developed a plan where he would rely less and less on financial support from his mother and deliver real value to the family. I'm going to make this work, he said. I'll earn the respect of my older brother and I'll stand up on my own two feet. However, please understand I'll need some help at the start. Help in buying a couple of smart suits, help in paying the deposit for my own flat, call it startup costs. His mother sighed. More money, she thought. Yes, said the younger son, but this is different. You won't be paying me to lie around the house. You'll be helping me to stand and grow. And I think that's, uh, it would be a key element. And, and there, if you think of that tale as the RFU as the mother and the premiership and the championship as the two sons, uh, that's, I think, where you'd say that this was an investment into the future of English rugby. And crucially, because the league is, is developed in a way where it has the potential to grow its commercial revenue, that level of support will not be going up year after year, but will be coming down year after year. So there's an opportunity to invest in a model which delivers better results and costs progressively less as it grows. I mean, I'm not I'm not a multimillionaire who owns a rugby club, but I suppose the the, the worry would be would would you know in the short term with everything that's happening with COVID, would there be an expectation that the rugby club owners would have to prop up the rest of that money from what the RFU can get whilst the commercial deals aren't there? No, I don't think so. I think that the the commercial revenues. Um, would would you know? Would, I think there's a sound model that would generate commercial revenue. Now, as you say, it's not. It's a difficult time, and the commercial world out there is tough. Um, it's funny that I mean, the commercial world is tough. That's true, and the pandemic has obviously had a devastating effect on many areas uh, of the economy. Uh, but you never hear anyone say the commercial world out there is easy. I mean, it's always mm. it's always difficult. And here, I think there's a league, you know, where we've centralised a lot of the commercial rights again, where we create a, a product which is a bit different. Um, and can deliver real value. And, you know, we go into detail about a, a supporter app where we get this audience and we get the data to be very rich and powerful, uh, which delivers real value to sponsors, etc. So that kind of detail uh, is in the model as well, which indicate demonstrates how the commercial revenue can grow. So, you know, I don't think this is a league uh, which will rely on wealthy men. And that, as I said earlier, that's probably a progression which English rugby needs to move away from. I mean, these uh, the wealthy men who've sustained premiership clubs for many years uh, have delivered a, a fantastic service to the game. There's no question because they've driven the club game forward. But I think, you know, at certainly at championship level, and it's for PRL to decide what they want to do, but we need to be moving towards a more sustainable model. And the simple fact of a sustainable model is that player salaries need to be connected to commercial revenue and you know that's something that the game i think just has to get towards because the trouble with the wealthy men uh, subsidizing clubs is that those wealthy men don't hang around forever so unless they're moving towards a sustainable model in due course that funding will stop and then uh, league uh, clubs as we've seen can clump tumble down the leagues at an alarming rate yeah absolutely I, th I think it's interesting to ask the question around you know you discuss that player salary versus uh, commercial revenue now there's obviously having read through it there's a huge amount of details going into what player salaries will look like um 
one of the other interesting parts of it was that there's only going to be a certain amount of players allowed to play over a certain age and a certain amount of foreign players allowed in the league. Now, we're, I know we're moving away from the actual uh, real ins and outs of the detailed stuff itself, but it's important for people to understand that this this is going to be made up of, of, of really young English players, young English qualified players progressing at a level where they, they can play loads of rugby, which I'm a huge fan of, having had to leave my country to come here and get regular rugby. Um, at what stage do you think that this this proposal could actually come into real life at what time do you when you put this together did you think that this could happen within the next you know 6 to 12 months so look i mean you know with in terms of time scales and some people have said to me oh this this will take years and and this will take that you know if everyone came together and said actually you know let's look at this model you know let's sit down let's really kick the tires and 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 you know make changes and and amend it but if if the rfu PRL, the championship clubs, the universities, if we could develop a broad consensus in the game, then there's no reason why this couldn't happen uh, quite quickly. Uh, if the, you know, the presentation of a model is, you know, brings suspicion and, uh, you know, suggestions that there are somehow ulterior motives and this is some kind of hidden plot because it's such a fractured game, because, you know, there's so much mistrust within the game that, uh, people can't just look at a proposal and just look at it on its merits. They have to layer onto the proposal all of these dastardly plots that, that they think is some sort of trap for them to fall into. So I would say that if a consensus can be built, and make no mistake, I'm not pretending this is in, an easy to build a consensus, but if it is possible to develop a consensus within the game, uh, then I think the changes can be made quite quickly. Uh, and, and I'm certainly not saying that this model is the final answer. What I would hope is that this model provides a base for serious discussion among these stakeholders. Uh, and from that discussion, a model will uh, hopefully emerge uh, that people can gather around. Okay, so we're going to round it off with two final questions. And I suppose the first one is, to some degree, what you've what you've been talking about there. I mean, the question is, in its sim most simplistic form, what do you, Ed Griffiths, want to get out of this model? Uh, personally, it's not about me personally, genuinely not about me personally. You know, I have a, uh, a small company where, you know, several of us are fully employed and working well and, and effectively and very happily. So there's, there's nothing for me in it specifically. Um, if um, people want me to play a role going forward, then obviously I'll, I can look at that. But there's absolutely no condition of that at all. All I've done uh, and I suppose, you know, lockdown presented an opportunity for reflection and, and maybe a time to to put together a model like this. All I've tried to do is to spark a kind of discussion. And if other people take it forward, if I'm asked to take it forward or to play a role in taking it forward, that's really immaterial. I think the issue here is, you know, is this a model which can bring benefits to English rugby? And, and if it is, then it's for everybody in English rugby to, to, as I say, get involved and have a serious discussion and emerge with something that um, uh, people can support. Okay, and finally, rounding an offer, because because of the detail I can see you've gone into with these 76 pages, there's no way that you haven't considered this side of it. And I, I wonder, when you were putting this document together, what areas, if any, did you see that there was going to be strong resistance to? Which areas stood out that you thought like there's going to be a, a, an element of resistance to this based on just because 
um, the information that you have? And in hindsight, what would you say to those people? So look, there's two areas um, which are clearly an issue. And, and the first is the replacement of the premiership academies with six regional academies. And, and, and that is because I know, having been in a premiership club with a, you know, the Saracens Academy has a, a very proud history and has consistently been very highly rated and has delivered many uh, excellent players. Uh, but there will be an, an, an emotional and instinctive response that I'm certainly not going to uh, wouldn't even consider closing my academy. And so that is is a structure, major structural change to the game. And, and all I would say to those premiership clubs is just look at chapter 10 in the document. You don't have to read all 76 pages, <laughs> but look at chapter 10 uh, and just consider it. Because I genuinely believe, having having worked for seven years at a, seven years and 26 days uh, <laughs> at, a, at a premiership club, having... Having worked at, you know, I think there are genuine benefits uh, for premiership clubs to look at this new model. So that would be the first element. And the second element, which we haven't actually touched on, uh, is promotion relegation. And there are people uh, who are very, very adamant that promotion relegation uh, must stay and an automatic promotion relegation from the premiership to the championship and from championship to national one. Uh, and what this model proposes is certainly not an end to promotion relegation it proposes a better fairer form of promotion relegation by criteria so basically where an independent panel uh, chaired by a QC is set up with re representatives from premiership and from the championship uh, which essentially marks clubs uh, on various criteria from uh, stadium and training ground infrastructure to financial resources to performance on the field to crowd uh, attendances uh, and 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 so uh, effectively uh, runs promotion relegation uh, according to criteria, which I think is a better and a fairer system. So the two issues are promotion relegation, uh, which I think is has always been controversial, and and there I would have, I would say to the purists that you know there there's a there is a pure idea of rugby as a a pyramid uh, a ladder with automatic one up one down promotion relegation um, but I think that the state of the game at the moment requires a, a better fairer system of promotion relegation that would be promotion and relegation by criteria uh, and the second issue is the academies and and that's where again you know I, I would say premiership clubs you know have a look at it be open-minded um, you know don't just uh, accede to the instinctive emotional response uh, have a look at chapter 10 uh, in the document all the premiership clubs have the document um, and consider because i think there are real genuine benefits uh, not only for the young players not only for the championship not only for the rfu uh, not only for the universities i think there are real benefits uh, for the premiership clubs okay so as we as we begin to round this off ed um, you've been through some fantastic detail on a proposal that I'm sure uh, was put together with a lot of detail and a lot of hard graph. What is the next stage? Has this been given to championship clubs? Have they decided whether they're going to vote opt in or opt out? Or on what stage do we move to next? So, so the, the champion, the um, the process, as I said at the beginning, is that this proposal was put to the championship clubs. Uh, they gave overwhelming support for the core principles of the league. There are certain, you know, there are certain clubs that will have some issues. Uh, probably every club will have some issues uh, within the 76 pages. Um, so that was the first stage. The second stage was to go to the RFU 
to the premiership clubs, to universities, to prospective sponsors and broadcasters, to national, to the NCA, National One Clubs, etc. And basically to go to everyone in the game and to start a, a serious discussion and to see if a consensus can emerge from that discussion. And, and that's what's happening at the moment. We're involved in all those discussions. And if a consensus does emerge within the next few weeks, uh, that I'd, ideally by the end of August, you'd be able to go back to the championship clubs and say, right, this is the proposed model for the new league. This is a, the model which is subject, which is improved by negotiations with all these other stakeholders. And this is something that we can move forward on. So the challenge at the moment is to try and build a consensus within the league for this model or an improved form of this model uh, that we can take forward. And, you know, if we can get a consensus, uh, that's great. Uh, if we can't take a consensus, then, you know, we need to try and find another way forward. Absolutely. Well, uh, thank you so much for your time. I do really appreciate you jumping on and having that kind of open, honest conversation around this this proposal that you're putting forward. I'm looking forward to seeing what sort of progress is made and in which direction that league takes. So thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Niall.